is considered one of the greatest letters ever written, and many would say it is the greatest letter ever written. Mm -hmm. And as we look at the Apostle Paul's words, our goal is to understand what he intended and what he said to the church there at Rome. And in doing so, we'll spend a little time reviewing what we uh, endeavored to learn last week and look at a broad view of why he's writing this letter and then, time permitting, look at part of that, um, that building block, if you would, uh, of what we will discover of the purpose he's writing. So let's <clears throat> begin looking at verse 8 as we've read the first seven verses last week and sought to unpack those. We look at uh, verse 8. It begins there with the word first. <clears throat> first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son. And without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well <coughs> as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, and so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Amen. We look at God's holy word today in the letter written to the Romans. And I want to just review what I intended to get across last week uh, in case I didn't get it across. It's always a safe measure. And in beginning a book like this that uh, depends a lot upon getting these first things right, we want to make sure we understand um, <clears throat> Paul's intent at the very beginning. He mentions just a few things about himself, though he does speak much in these verses here in relation to himself in the gospel. He just mentions that he's a servant of Christ Jesus, an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel of God. He introduces himself very rapid speed. He speaks of himself as doing the Lord's work, and the Lord's work is his service. And so we should not be offended when we read of Paul uh, claiming, in some sense, the uh, ministry, which sounds to be the ministry of the Spirit or the ministry of God, because God had so blessed the apostles in such a way that their work was the Lord's work. It was through them that he continued to do and teach, as we've discovered in Acts already. And so Paul is a specially called, set-apart individual. He even says in one letter that he was set apart from his mother's womb, which shows that there in the womb the life existed, 
and was valued and, and was there sanctified for a purpose before ever being born. Paul was already marked out for this ministry before he even walked the road to Damascus and experienced the actuality of justification. God, before all time, had chosen Paul not merely for salvation, but also for service in the ministry to the church. Isn't that a grand thing? That God looks all the way to the very eternal counsels uh, between Himself, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. And He has so been in control of our lives that before we were ever even in existence, He had thought of us. He had marked out for us. He had appointed the vocations and the things that we would partake in. This is, this is the God of the Bible. It's not the God of paganism that everything in life is very rapid, um, chant, random chance, and history at its rapid pace has no uh, progression to it. But God has, before all time, planned all that will take place in this world for the ends to which He created them, for the glory of the Lord. And Paul here indicates he's in the service of his Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus in particular. He is an apostle, specially called. He's set apart specifically for the gospel. He was set apart by his own choosing for a time to the law as a Pharisee. One who would be set apart, that word would sound just like the word Pharisee, Pharizo in the Greek. And he's saying very clearly, I'm no longer that. I'm now set apart for the gospel of God. <clears throat> you know, many people talk about the gospel, but not many people, people preach the gospel. And a lot of people uh, speak about the gospel being central, but they don't really know the gospel. And so Paul wants to make it very clear what the gospel is right at the start. And he indicates that you can't understand the gospel without the Trinity. You know, a, a lot of times in certain circles, it's discussed, can someone be a Christian and reject the Trinity? And the answer is absolutely not. In fact, the definitive measure of what a Christian is involves accepting that there is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, equally glorious and different in role and function. And if I didn't mention distinct. And so <clears throat> there was a lot of battle that took place, even in relation to the season we're in. For the tradition tells us that old jolly Saint Nick, as many people refer to him today, really actually is behind a legend of, a, of a, one who was a Christian, a bishop, who actually fought for the doctrine of the Trinity. It's very interesting that this doctrine was the doctrine that would be labored over so valiantly. And that in, in the center of this doctrine would be the incarnation of the Lord. If you go and you read the letters of 1 John, um, and if I recall rightly, I was looking through my Greek New Testament, and the order of it, the way the uh, Tyndale House production of it puts, the order of it's not the same order as our Bibles, and it's interesting to see how the placement of the, the, the books are. And if I recall rightly, I remember 1st, 2nd, 3rd John really preceding even this book. Um, it's interesting to see, I may be wrong in that, I'm just by way of memory, is that sometimes the emphasis we see that was formed in the early church as these letters were put together is different from the way we view it as Western Christians. And um, the one thing that has remained the same is 
Because if you read that book, 1 John, for example, it indicates to us that the big battle of the first century had to deal with people that were beginning to reject that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In other words, that He was incarnate. In other words, that the Christmas, the narrative account, was true or no. So it's a very vital point um, that is made that not only is the Gospel directly related to the Trinity, but the Gospel has at its center the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, bodily, to come and be a substitute for sinners. And around that controversy is the issue of the atoning work of the Lord. Some throughout history have indicated that the cross was merely an example, or it was some other thing, but it wasn't an actual substitution. When you think about just the logic of that, imagine God the Father sending His Son to die on a cross just so He would show us a picture. No, He didn't just do that to show us a picture or an example or anything else. There was such a need for man to be redeemed that God's Son had to bleed and die. That's how great and serious our sin is. It necessitated the second person of the Trinity taking on our human nature and dying on a cross in our place. It would really be nonsensical to teach the atonement in any other way that does not exalt, at least centrally, the matter of Him dying in our place as a substitute. And if He didn't die in our place as a substitute, you're all in your sins and I'm in my sins. And all throughout history have never, never ever been covered by the blood of the Lamb. That would be a tragedy. And there would be no bodily resurrection. Because when he rose up from the grave, it says it's for our justification. It was accepted. That offering. And he went and secured that offering in heaven for us. It says by the blood of the eternal covenant. So that our salvation has been absolutely sealed and secured by the work of Christ. Both actively and passively. Well... So, so by way of review, I want to make sure we understand what Paul's getting at. Is one, he wants us to know who he is and what he, why he's writing. Uh, and he's starting off with that there's no way for you to know the gospel without the Trinity. And we should expect then throughout the letter to hear a lot about the Father and a lot about the Son and a lot about the Spirit, but mostly about the Son. So he's introducing things to us. And one little thing that stood out to me as we studied that text last week that um, was probably the larger discovery for me, and I, I, I sense that if God allowed me to discover that as a large, in a large way, it would be something that would be beneficial to the church here. And that is, for the sake of His name, is something in which is used as a phrase in the Bible to speak of the knowledge of the Lord, that the knowledge of the Lord would spread. Um, and this becomes very important when we get to that 17th verse that we look at today is a quote from Habakkuk, which was a book that anticipated a day when the knowledge of the Lord would cover the world as the waters cover the sea, uh, which is pretty expansive, right? And so there's this anticipation of that. But while Habakkuk had written, he wrote in a time when his land was going to be invaded. And he wasn't going to see that day. And so he was told by the Lord 
that the righteous live by faith. In other words, they live by trusting in His promise. They live by trusting in His gospel, the good news. Um, not, not by seeing all of it happen, but by trusting God's Word that it will happen. And this has been the example from the very beginning as we look, we'll look at chapters 4 and 5 in, in Romans about faith, what faith is. We see Abraham, the father of the faithful, is one who uh, believed the promise of a son when he himself stood no hope of having a son and when his wife's womb was as good as dead. In hope against hope, he believed. Um, and as he gave glory to God, he grew strong. He grew strong in his faith. Right? Um, <clears throat> all this is connected. And so when we read a letter like this, we want to see the connections so we can get down to the specific things Paul's teaching. But that's the review. The review is simply we have this servant set apart from uh, the womb for this gospel. He says this gospel is in, unintelligible without the Trinity, the Father who gave the Son, who together gave the Spirit um, to us. And he's teaching to those in Rome, and he's speaking to the church at Rome, if you would, or those in Rome, which is quite different from the Roman church as we know it today. So the Roman Catholic church today is not the church he's talking to. He's talking to the church in Rome around A.D. 57. Around A.D. 1517, there was another letter nailed on a door against the church of Rome to let the Christians know there once again what the real gospel was. But we're talking now first century. We're talking A.D. 57. The, the original unveiling of the gospel that should not be forgotten, that has to be republished by every generation, or we will forget it. There's a, a responsibility and a stewardship of the church of God to get the gospel right. And if you're going to get the gospel right, you're going to have to know who you are in Christ, and you're going to have to know who Christ is in God. That He is the second person of the Trinity, sent to do the work the Father sent Him to do, and the sender of the Spirit with the Father to accomplish that work on earth so that one day indeed the very promise to Habakkuk would take place, and that is the glory, the knowledge of the glory. A lot of times we just say the glory of the Lord, and we assume everybody knows what that means. But it says the knowledge so people would know He is Lord. And they would bend their knee joyfully to their Creator. So that is sufficient for by way of review. I usually don't do reviews, so I'm testing it out on you today. Um, no quizzes. It's not homeschool this week. It's Sunday. We're resting. You have no worries about being tested on it. But my intention is I want you to really know the letter. I want you to know what Paul's saying. Now, <clears throat> the difficulty with Romans is to know how fast to go. Because every verse has its own sermon. And if you read Martin Lloyd-Jones for any length of time, you see that this could be a while. And it may end up being that way. But I promise that I will endeavor to labor in a way that you could handle. And also that I can handle. So as we look at Romans, 
I do want to go into a broad picture of these verses first, verses um, 8 down through um, actually 8.18, because it all goes together. And I want you to see what he's doing. And in seeing what he's doing in this large portion that he is introducing us to, um, it will help us know wherever we go, slower, faster, this book. And <clears throat> if I were to title this, I would say that this last week I called it Paul's Gospel. And we said the Paul of Paul's Gospel. And we said the Gospel of Paul's Gospel. Now I'm saying this is the power of Paul's Gospel. Okay, The power of Paul's Gospel. And <clears throat> as we look at this, we see that the main thing that he's getting at shows up um, halfway through the text. And it's in the words um, concerning strengthening, strengthening of the church and mutual encouragement of one another. So look at that. If you would, drop down and you'll see that right around verse 12, this is the center of the, the, the verses he's speaking of. It really picks up, um, if you were to look at the word faith up above, the obedience of faith, all the way to around verse 17, and you were to look at those verses, there's a lot of symmetry and parallelism so the scholars indicate that the center of this pattern that Paul's getting at is the issue of strengthening the church. And if that, that, if that is his main point, then it should become obvious in what he says in this section that he indeed is writing for the purpose to strengthen uh, the existing church at Rome. Remember, he hasn't been there. He's not been to the church at Rome, but there's a a lively church at Rome. And he anticipates going there in fulfillment of God's promise to bring him there to preach the gospel. But unlike other places he's gone, where he's gone to plant a new work and build on no one's foundation, in this unique case, Paul's going not to plant the church, but he's going to strengthen the church. So I believe scholars are right to indicate when he says... That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, or uh, ahead of that. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that those verses, 11 and 12, 11b and 12, are telling us why he's writing Romans. If you're like me, the book of Romans up to this point, I would have told you it's a great evangelistic book. But that's not why Paul says he's writing. Um, I would have maybe even thought of some secondary purposes why this book was written. But as we actually study through the letter, it is very clear here, Paul is writing not to convert the Romans, but to strengthen the Roman church already existing. So everything that Romans is going to be talking about has as its primary purpose and goal to strengthen an existing church that's thriving in the imperial city in the first century. And that has to relate to us. In other words, if we're going to use Romans for that which has been intended to be written, we have to use Romans in a way that is to be to strengthen existing churches of Christians already born again to the faith. 
That's why Romans is written. According to Paul. Now, how then is the church strengthened? I want to give you four, uh, four things I see in the broad scope of the text. Why uh, or how is the how is the church strengthened? How is he going to strengthen the church initially? Um, well, first, he's going to do it through praise to God for their faith. That shows up in verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He praises God. For their faith. He starts with that. We don't want to neglect that. We're going to come back to that, Lord willing, here in a minute. The second thing is, he strengthens the church by making known to them his prayers. His prayers for, especially, him to be able to get to Rome. So, he strengthens them by prayer. Prayer to God. Praise to God. There's a third thing. He strengthens them According to this letter, he strengthens them initially, or he he sees that they will be strengthened by his presence, by him being with them. He's indicating to us that he cannot do what he intends to do in the strengthening work that's required for that church without showing up. He has to go to Rome to do this. And this letter though it certainly could be said to be strengthening, it is not a letter that accomplishes its purpose. It is a letter that prepares the church at Rome to be strengthened. It helps them to see the importance of of being ready when he comes to receive the means he's going to give bodily to strengthen them. And how, how relevant that is for... This time of year when we, we celebrate the importance of the incarnation. That God himself, the second person of the Trinity, came. He had to come. He had to advance. He had to take on our flesh. He had to be present with us. He had to become Emmanuel. He had to become with us. Not merely in spirit, but bodily. As a human being. Paul's saying, I cannot accomplish the strengthening you need as a church without me coming to you. So it is the object of my prayer and it is the goal to become present with you. I want to be there with you. And then it, it's progressive. It goes from praise. It goes to uh, praise, praise to God, prayer to God, presence, but it's building. It's not linear. It's just it's building progressively to the point he's getting at. And he's saying the one thing that's going to be needed for an existing church to be strengthened in Rome is going to be the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how the Roman church that's already been born again, that's already converted, will be strengthened. Everything Paul is going to say is going to make the case as to why they need him to come And why they need him to come in presence. And why they need him to come and preach. With them. In the same room. And why there is no substitute for doing anything less. Than that happening. The whole letter makes that one case. So it's actually more accurately to say that Romans is not written 
to directly strengthen the church by the letter itself. Romans is to show us the means by which, the important means by which the church must be strengthened, and that is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in person by the preacher, in this case, the Apostle Paul. Okay? And we see that. I didn't read the text of it, so I want to drop down. He ends with, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Because first, it is the place you get strength. It is the only place you get strength. The gospel is the place the church and the position the church must be in to be strengthened. They must hear this gospel in person, not merely by letter. And so he says, how he said this, I don't, I don't know, but it, it needs to be commented on. I am not ashamed of the gospel is a hyperbole. It's a, it's a, it's a statement that it's, it's, um, it's like he's saying, I'm proud of the gospel. Um, um, my confidence is in this gospel to do this work. That's why I'm eager to come and preach to you in person, because I know this gospel is going to do the work that has to be done. When I come, I'm bringing the gospel and I'm going to preach it in person to you because the gospel is the thing that's going to make you strong. And you're going to need to be strong in these days. And the only way you're going to be strong is if I can come there and I can preach to you in person this gospel. Because this gospel is the power of God. It's not just human power. It's, not, it's God's power. And he says, for salvation. For salvation. So the opposite of salvation is destruction. Bodily, physically, and spiritually. And so he's speaking about salvation. Now, you said that this is not an evangelistic letter. It's not. Why is he talking about salvation? And we need to back up to what um, are the ABCs of salvation, and that is there are three tenses of salvation. There is, we have been saved from the, penal, uh, from the penalty of our sin. Right? We've been saved from the penalty. We are justified by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we are acquitted. Our sin is covered. Our guilt is gone. We have been saved. But you know, that's not the primary tense the past tense is not the primary tense that the New Testament speaks about salvation. In fact, it's, it's the least. It's the least that you hear salvation spoken of in the past tense. And of course, second is the present tense. <clears throat> we are being saved from the power of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. The, 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 the sin that rules over us. We're being sanctified. Right? That's... That's salvation there. And then future um, is you will be saved from the presence of sin. Right? Romans 8. Romans 4 and 5, you'll hear about justification. That, um, realize in the past tense. And you'll read around 6 through 8 about sanctification. But you also read at the end of 8 about the day in which we long for. That, that there will be no sin. Think about that. Mm. There'll be no sin. The presence of sin will be saved from. And it will be no more. And together with that is this idea that we will be saved from the wrath of God, which also shows up in conjunction with the past tense in Romans 4 and 5. That not only have been justified, but 
you will know with confidence you will be saved from God's wrath. When you stand before judgment, before God at death or at the coming of our Lord, that you will you will be saved. That's the future tense of salvation. So there's three tenses of salvation. There's, there's the past tense, which is used the least. And there's the present and future, which is largely what he's getting at. It's largely what he's talking about. So when we talk about salvation here, he's not talking primarily about the past. He's talking about salvation for people who are already saved. <coughs> and he's speaking about that need of the, the gospel now is the strengthening message by an in-person preacher to the church because God chose to do it this way that that is the way the church is going to be made strong so that the name of God will be known throughout the world. That's the means that he's going to accomplish the work throughout all history. And he says it's for the Jew first and the Greek. It doesn't mean the Jews preferred. It just means that the gospel came to the Jews first. And we know that because Paul's bringing it and he's a Jew. But the punch of it is also the Greek, meaning also you in Rome, who are primarily Gentile. In other words, there's not a, a gospel that's going to strengthen the Jewish Christian. There's not a gospel that's going to strengthen the Gentile Christian that's different. It's the same gospel. He said it's for the Jew first, came to us first, salvation's from the Jews, and it arises out of Old Testament Judaism. It is the fruition of and the fulfillment of Judaism. It is real Judaism. Because it honors God. The Judaism of the Judaism that many of the Pharisees had hated God. In ignorance, they hated God. How do we know that? They killed Christ. Christ reveals God. They hated God. It's a miracle when God comes into the heart and life of a person, whether Jew or Greek, and makes them love God. That's not power of man who's dead in his sins, weak, given over to his transgressions. God alone does that. Paul's confident that the gospel assumedly begins, begins the work of salvation, but he's not talking about beginning the work of salvation with Romans. He's talking about continuing the work of salvation in the present so that you may have confidence when you stand before God that you will be delivered from the wrath of God. So you may have confidence that when you stand before God one day or you enter from this life to the next life and go on living there, that there will be no more sin. That you can look at death with hope and joy and peace, knowing, yes, yes, there's been much accomplished in this world, but where I'm going, I'm going to the place where there's no sin. The church triumphant today is enjoying God with such cheer and such gratitude and such thanksgiving that we can only... We can only taste a little bit by reading about it. The church triumphant, part of the church 
The church in heaven worships the Lamb today without sin. We on earth are the church militant. We worship the Lamb today. But we struggle. We fight against sin. And because we are here struggling and fighting against sin, the gospel is a power to help us have the power to conquer sin and have the assurance that we will one day be without sin. A lot of people struggle with assurance. That's a big part of Romans. The only way you can know you'll stand before that judgment and you'll be freed and delivered and saved from the wrath of God and you will have no presence of sin is only because you have present faith today. And that's what he says next. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now theologians and scholars have spilled pens and pens of ink on the phrase from faith for faith or faith to faith. But if you just get the context we looked at, why it's being written, is to prepare this church to be strengthened by the in-person preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to be able to appreciate that when it comes. Then the words from faith for faith already make sense. He's talking about strengthening the faith. Luther and Calvin both get it right and they say this. They say it has something to do with the growth of faith. And in order for faith to grow, there must be in-person preaching of the gospel to strengthen the church. And you have to know and be able to appreciate that when it comes. And so you have the whole letter of Romans. If you have such a gargantuan, excellent letter written before us for that purpose, how important must it be that we be prepared to appreciate when we have the gospel before us in person to strengthen our faith? How important it is to make sure we understand there's a need for that. So that when the church gathers, they realize what they're doing when they gather on the Lord's day. Primarily is coming to hear the gospel that, yes, saves sinners, but by majority in an existing church, strengthens the saints from faith for faith. And all this makes sense. You just read through the letter, plain reading. You see Abraham, I quoted, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. What did he do? He grew strong in his faith. Faith is something that's to grow in strength by the gospel proclaimed in person. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. There are those who um, of the last century especially have tried to make this to mean the faithfulness of the Lord and not faith in the Lord to receive it. The Reformation is built on the latter, faith to receive the righteousness of God. And I take it this way. So I was meditating on it this week, and I wondered, why do people get this wrong? And I can see why they would get it wrong, because if you were just narrow-mindedly stick right in the text here and go nowhere else in the book of Romans, you would easily be able to get it wrong, um, just, like, just like a cult leader would be able to get it wrong when he's reading John chapter 1 
and says, look, there are many gods because they take one word out of context and they don't continue to read to verse 14 and realize that he is God, the only God. Or actually goes longer than that in John. Let's read the whole chapter of John 1. When you read John 1, right? And somebody's saying to you, oh, Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. And then it says the only God, he has revealed him. And he's talking about the Son. If, if you were to stop just at these verses, yeah, you, you can maybe try to make a case that it's about something else. But if you read the letter of Romans, you know it's not about something else. This is speaking about a righteousness received from heaven by faith alone. The salvation is not accomplished by the faithfulness of man. The power of God is not in faith of men. It is in the gospel of God. It makes you read it differently. It makes you read it the way it was intended to be read. For the preparation of the strengthening of the church through the in-person preaching of the gospel. So from faith for faith is related. It's by faith that the righteous live. And yes, yes, we can take a little bit of a, of a critique here because in, in many ways, if this is used just evangelistically, being used merely to tell people how to be saved, then that's not the intent what Paul meant. He is talking in a sense about a faithfulness, at least in this respect, and that is... These righteous ones will live by trusting in the Lord. They merely do not begin to trust the Lord. They go on trusting the Lord more and more until the day dawns. And how are they going to do that? How are they going to grow more and more in their faith? How are they going to not be stagnant in their faith? How are they not going to grow weak in their faith? They're going to grow strong in their faith by nothing less than that which provides the power of God. That's the gospel. So he says, you want to know what's going to be needed to strengthen you when I come and to, by the way, he doesn't come one way. You can't have a relationship with the church if it's just one way. If it's just Paul show up and preach. He says, what I mean is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He says, he's saying, I can't have a relationship with you without also hearing the gospel from you. The gospel is not merely preached in a pulpit by a preacher. The gospel also will be preached from the people to the preacher. Which shows that we are a body that each element of that body requires strengthening, including that which serves to convey the gospel message from a pulpit. There's no way for a church to have the God-intended relationship with a pastor or whoever is at the time here an apostle intended to be in relationship with a body without that person also seeing they need to hear the gospel from that body. That the one who comes to strengthen the body also has to be strengthened by that body because he's part of the body of Christ. And that's the way Paul views it. 
Paul views him as himself as part of the church in need of the strengthening of the gospel himself in addition to playing a primary role in bringing that gospel to the church to strengthen the body as a whole. Certainly he would be strengthened by preaching it because he has to go over it in his mind. He has to prepare for it. He has to explain it. But he says that's not even enough. There are gifts in the church that he longs to experience and it requires him to be in person to experience them. That's Paul's view of the church and ministry. It's it's really phenomenal. And so I hope hope we're getting the point. This whole letter, this whole letter is written so that this church will be merely prepared to appreciate the in-person presence of the preaching of the gospel so as to strengthen their faith. And, and he says, it's the gospel that's going to have to be preached. When I come, it's the gospel. The gospel I was telling you about. The gospel you can't understand without uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and understanding the persons of the Trinity and understanding um, centrally, centrally, it's about Jesus Christ. So when I come, if we're going to be strengthened together, it's going to be by preaching the gospel to each other. That's how it's going to happen. I want to say one more thing going into verse 18. The reason I read that is because when we go into verse 18, it, if you follow the logic, it says, for I'm not ashamed gospel. Then it says, for the wrath of God's revealed from heaven. So what is he doing? He's saying, here's the thing that will strengthen you. And here's the thing that has no power at all. What's the thing that has no power at all? He introduces all of the things in the world have no ability. You can look the world over. And I have a quote from Calvin. I I didn't write it down because I want to stay engaged with you in the preaching. But there's a quote from Calvin in his commentary. You can look it up. And Calvin's commentaries are readily available. And I would recommend his commentary to be one of the best, if not the best, to help us with the Romans. And if you read on this verse, he takes a moment to just say, you can look the world over. And he basically says, you won't find what you need to grow or be strengthened in all the world. That's, in other words, he's going the negative. He's saying, everywhere else will not provide you with the strength to grow the church and strengthen the church. And notice when he talks about growth, he doesn't talk about numbers. He doesn't talk about the numbers of the Roman believers. He doesn't talk about their works. What does he talk about? He talks about their faith. He talks about their trust that has been proclaimed. But but back to the, the, the broad matter here. The broad matter is that He is showing us you can look the whole world over and you're not going to find what you need to strengthen the church. What you need is going to be found in in in-person preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why, why he's praising them. That's why he's praying for them. That's why he wants to be present with them. 
That's why he wants to come and preach this gospel to them. Um, and I don't have time to get anything else. So, think on that. It's a beautiful letter. It's glorious. It's glorious when we, we look at what, he, what did God want to say to the church through the apostles. And you, you read it, and you study it, and you see how this all makes sense. And you can imagine after all the chapters of Romans that have to go through, it must be pretty important if he spends all that time in a letter preparing them to appreciate the in-presence person preaching the gospel so they would be made strong. It must be really vital for the church throughout all ages. And that's why this letter remains, practically speaking. The church would never let go of it. And, and somewhat humorously, it was this letter that rocked the Roman Catholic Church and said, let's make sure we don't forget the gospel. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Let's stand together and pray. Yeah. Father, thank you for your grace to us. We ask you your blessing. Those who hear, have ears to hear, will be given to hear this message. And that we might receive it and have fruit born in our lives, even already. For our appreciation for that which we get to experience all the time, week in and week out. The strengthening of our faith, faith by the preaching of the gospel for the glory of your name throughout the whole world. We now commit ourselves afresh to you in trust, knowing that it is the just will live by faith. May we be counted among the just. And may we even now partake of that which represents the body of our Lord and the blood of our Lord by faith and faith alone. Being strengthened by the means of grace, you have provided your church to be marked out from this world. This your Lord's Supper, this communion, this table for all who put their trust in you. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You come.